morning. Today's reading will be from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 11 through 21. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perspectives. They're fascinating. What I mean by that is a particular area that you may actually know well. Let's say it's a forest. One perspective on that forest is being in it. Noticing the trees, identifying the various elements of that forest. Another perspective on the forest may be being in the valley, looking up and into the forest. Another perspective may be the mountain, looking down into the valley and onto the forest. Are any of those perspectives incorrect? No. It's a pretty easy answer. All of them are different, and all of them focus your eye in a different way. So what I'd like for you to do this morning with me is consider what might be, for many of you, a different perspective. And I start out with a comment that could be rather controversial or stir some of you up on the inside. Remember, it's a perspective. Here's the statement. The main message of the Gospels is not, come have a personal relationship with me. An invitation by Jesus. At least not Matthew's gospel. Now that is not, hear me clearly, that is not to negate the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus. Not at all. However, the main message of the gospel, particularly of Matthew, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. There's a description of the kingdom of God 
in Matthew's gospel. There's an invitation to enter the kingdom of God in Matthew's gospel. So you may ask yourself, why did Jesus give the gospel with this kind of story? Well, the simple answer is because he was communicating to his audience. Jesus was communicating to a Jewish audience, not a Gentile audience. As a matter of fact, early on, if Jesus had taken his message concerning the kingdom of God to the Gentiles, they would have had furrowed brows. They wouldn't have understood it. Not the way the Jewish audience did. Why? Because the Jewish audience had inherited as a part of their complete identity the notion of the kingdom of God. So when Jesus brings them the good news, he uses that language. What were the expectations for the nation of Israel, Jesus's audience concerning the kingdom of God? Well, the first goes all the way back to Abraham. Their expectation is that they were God's chosen people. Chosen to bless the nations of the earth. Although arguably the Jewish people by the time of Jesus had forgotten the last part. Blessing the nations of the earth. They had focused on being the chosen ones. But they were chosen for a purpose which was to bless the whole world. The second part of the expectations of the Jewish listener. Was that Yahweh was Israel's king. So think about Moses and the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments coming down, the various and sundry laws concerning the conduct of the people of Israel. It was all directly from God, who was Israel's king. And the expectation is you're part of my kingdom, my friends. Follow me. As king. There, there was no king. There were the law. And the prophets. And then. Historically into this picture. The nation of Israel. Cries out for a king. And God warns them. That the king won't be all that. But he gives them a king. In the person of Saul. And he's almost an immediate disappointment. But then on the heels of Saul comes David. And God, for whatever reason, chooses David as the penultimate description of the kingdom of God. He looks at the reign of David and he said, this is the kingdom and my kingdom will eventually come in the eternal form of the kingdom of David. That, that was the water they swam in. That was the air that they breathed. As a part of this whole kingdom understanding of their own self-understanding was the tabernacle and the temple. Because the tabernacle and the temple represented in a real way the very presence of God among them. 
That's where God dwelt. We know where God is. We know our king, which is God. He's in our temple. So you can imagine in the people's history, when the destruction of the temple took place, they were utterly devastated. Why? Because the kingdom of David was no more. Why? Because with the absence of the temple, there was the absence of God. This is what Jesus is stepping into when he addresses his audience. But he's stepping into an audience that saw a temple restored. An audience that had hope for the coming kingdom of God. An audience that was primed and ready for the announcement concerning the restoration of Israel and the kingdom of God. And then the announcement. The announcement came from Jesus, of course. Especially in the gospel of Matthew. It starts at the very beginning. Remember, the gospel of Matthew is the one that records the wise men looking for the young king. And Herod worried about a young king who would usurp his throne in the kingdom of Israel. And then early on in the life of Jesus, perhaps when he's 10 or 12 years old, you see Jesus at the temple debating with the scholars concerning the Torah, the law. You see Jesus, the king that the wise men acknowledge. You see Jesus in the temple, understanding the law in ways that no one else had. Jesus, by his very presence, even in his youth, is announcing the coming of the kingdom of God. But then, of course, in his adult years, when his ministry opens up, He gets very vocal concerning the kingdom of God. And he says in an audacious way. You heard it in the reading at the very end of the reading this morning. The kingdom of God, if you're looking for it, is with you. What becomes clear about Jesus' announcement is this. I am the presence of the kingdom of God. You're looking at it. The parables, especially in Matthew, are a delineation of a couple of things. What is the kingdom of God? When will it come? And also an invitation to step into it. That was Jesus' dominant message in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. When will it come and what will it be like? Think of the parables that you know so well and see if we cannot answer that question. First of all, Jesus says in Luke chapter 17, as we just read, the kingdom is already here in me. 
Then enter early this episode. In the life of John the Baptist, the one who points before anyone else to Jesus, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. The prophet, who was a ferocious prophet, calling the people to repentance, pointing them to Jesus and his kingdom. Near the end of his life, that fearless prophet, John, sends a message to Jesus through his disciples. You know what his message was. Are you really the one? Or should we expect another? It's one of my favorite passages in all the New Testament. This fierce, confident prophet near the end of his days quakes and worries. Dare I say, has a measure of doubt. Concerning whether Jesus really is the Messiah. And so he asks. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I want you to send this message back to John. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers, just like in our passage today, are healed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have received the good news concerning the kingdom of God. In other words, John, the answer to your question is in the miracles that are being performed everywhere I go. I'm announcing the kingdom with these miracles, which is why John, the gospel of John, frequently calls them signs instead of miracles. They're guideposts pointing to the kingdom of God. It is with you. It is among you. And it will come. It's already here. But not yet. Think of the parables of the farmers. Several of them. One, the farmer who sows seed. And notice that the sowing of the seed is very ordinary work. And hard work. And sometimes the seed sowing is effective. And sometimes what appears to be the kingdom seed is a failure. Or how about the parable of the weeds? When Jesus says, a farmer went out and sowed his field and in the middle of the night an enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And of course, the immediate response was, as soon as we see those tares, let's yank them out of the ground. And Jesus said, no, don't take them out. What I want you to do is let the tares grow right alongside the wheat until the final day comes, the day of judgment, and the weeds will be pulled out and the true wheat will emerge Or how about the parable of the mustard seed, the tiny little seed that seems so insignificant and small and almost invisible in your hand. It becomes a great tree. That's what the kingdom of God is like, says Jesus. Or how about this parable of the yeast? The yeast, it's it's virtually invisible. 
Ah, yes, you know what it is, but you put it in the bread. And it's not violent. It doesn't fight for its rights. It doesn't scream and shout. It very silently, silently transforms a flat bread. It raises it. When Jesus spoke concerning the kingdom of God, almost never did he talk about advancing it. As a matter of fact, words concerning advancing the kingdom of God are sometimes used in a negative way. Instead, when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, he talked about experiencing it. Because it is here, it is among you, it is real. So step into it. First of all, we have the Old Testament story. Second, we have the announcement of Jesus. And third, we have the future. After Jesus is gone, what does the kingdom of God look like? How does it play out in history? You see, the Christians, the early Christians, the Apostle Paul, and people who followed him did not tell a new story concerning the kingdom. They told about a new phase in the same story. It's the future. And here it comes. It is here in the presence of Jesus. But when Jesus' presence becomes absent, some of the language begins to change. And it is then that you begin to hear statements concerning being in Christ. When you hear statements concerning what we call, in an evangelical sense, in relationship with Jesus. That's the point. This future kingdom, right here, right now. Jesus is gone. How can we carry on, said the disciples. And Jesus says very clearly, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to guide you into all truth. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to be your adversary and your voice. He will point to me. By the time you get to John's epistles, it seems like the language of intimacy has picked up. I want to know Christ. No, meaning in an intimate way. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. To be conformed to his image and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's all over the New Testament. A deep, profound, mystical relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus has promised to them during that episode of his departure is I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. You, you see him pointing to the future? I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age, because there's more coming. There's a part two to this story. 
And I want you to wait and be patient. Part of your waiting, says Jesus, in this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, is going to be inevitable persecution. And as he tells his disciples, death, martyrdom. They lived out the reality of following Christ at all costs, even to the point of their death. There's something else that's clear about Jesus' teachings to the church going forward. My kingdom will not come or should not come. Advanced with a sword. But it should come quietly, powerfully, and in the form of compelling discipleship. That's how my kingdom comes. What does my kingdom look like for you who follow me, says Jesus? It looks like love instead of hate. It looks like forgiveness instead of retaliation. It looks like humility instead of pride. It looks like service instead of power. That's what my kingdom looks like. I invite you to join me and to watch the future. Part two, don't we wish we knew? We only have shadows. We only have guideposts. We only have people like John pointing to Jesus. But what we do know about the future, the kingdom of God, because of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, he's going to make everything new. There's going to come a day when everything is going to be set right. How many times, my friends, this week, have you longed for everything to be set right? That's what the future of God's kingdom is. A day when everything will be set right. A day when sin will be annihilated. Have you, like me, had boxing gloves on this week, fighting sin and wishing it would go away? It will. It will be annihilated by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And Satan, the prince of the power of the air, that's constantly nipping at the heels of the saints and trying to lead them astray, will be destroyed, thrown into the bottomless pit forever. That's what's coming in part two. That's the kingdom of the future. Judgment will be perfect and final. And order will be restored. No, we're not there yet, are we? Yes, we are. 
We're here because the presence of Christ is among us. And he calls us to live in that invisible kingdom. We're not there yet because he hasn't come again to settle all the accounts. And we wait. I, I want to mention a flurry of historical mistakes that the church has made concerning the kingdom of God. I don't expect that you will agree with all of them. So argue with me now or later. But here they are. The Holy Roman Empire was established. Once the dominant group of people in Rome were ostensibly Christian, that Holy Roman Empire was not the way of Jesus. Swords and spears and fighting men later marched under the banner of the cross. Can you think of anything more contradictory than that? Under the banner of the cross, the suffering Savior, the humble servant of God, people marched and killed others in their quest. And it wasn't the way of Jesus. It was an improper understanding of the kingdom of God. Our heritage, I own it. The Great Reformation routinely burnt heretics to death. That's not the way of the kingdom of God. Our own country and things like Salem witch trials, that's not the way of Jesus. In our politics today, right and left invoke the name of God as if their position is God's position. That is not the way of Jesus. Just contrast the historical moments that I have just mentioned to the parables and see if you can find a bigger contrast than that. Tiny mustard seed. Yeast and bread? I don't think so. The kingdom of God is different. So what does the roadmap to the kingdom of God look like? Very quickly, a few things. A roadmap to the invitation which Jesus gives everyone to be part of the kingdom of God, the roadmap is to give it all up for Jesus. Think about the parables of the lost coin. Think about the pearl of great price. Think about the man who went into a field and knew there was a treasure there and sold everything else so he could have that plot of land so he could seize that treasure. Jesus says, entering the kingdom of God is that radical. You must throw everything else aside. You must focus in a singular way on me and my kingdom. That's the pathway 
to the kingdom of God. A singular focus. Second pathway to the kingdom of God is to live a counter-cultural lifestyle. My friends, the question is not, what does our society say is okay? The question is, what does the kingdom of God say is okay? And we are altogether different. We answer that question many, many different ways. And it flies in the face of our culture. And sometimes we're persecuted for it. But we must follow if we're following in the footsteps of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I didn't say we follow by shouting at others who are not following or brandishing swords when they don't have our morality. We simply follow. First, you give it all up for Jesus. Second, we live a counter-cultural life. Third, We serve others, even our enemies, with humility. We bless and we do not curse. Fourth, in order to step into this invitation and find the roadmap to the kingdom of God, what Jesus says we need to do is watch for the subtle activity of the kingdom and join it. It doesn't mean that the subtle activity of the kingdom of God always comes in the context of the church itself. Nor does it mean that the subtle activity of the kingdom of God always comes through the people of God. God is bigger than that. And there are routinely times where there's something going on that if we have eyes and ears of kingdom followers, we will say, there it is. Let's step into that trajectory of the kingdom. It's all around us. So, two final things. in our activity as citizens of the kingdom of God. We don't pull out the weeds. We let God be the final judge. That is really hard for people of conviction like us. We want to move from conviction to judgment. It's a natural human move but it's not a move from the kingdom of God. Finally, it seems like to me to step into this invitation to be a part of the kingdom of God. We work diligently, tirelessly to initiate the atmosphere of the kingdom wherever we are. And then then we wait patiently, which is also hard to do because we want it to happen now. We want the reward of following God to show us timely results 
And God says, follow me and leave the timing up to me. Wait patiently. Can we do that? Sure we can. In fits and starts, but we can do that because that's what Jesus calls us to. Let's pray. Lord, your glory is beyond everything. There were a few people who were fortunate enough to see your glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. But for the rest of us, Lord, your your glory might not be that. Of course, it certainly isn't the physical presence of Christ. But your glory is frequently manifest in the people of God. Your glory is often manifest in us exercising kingdom principles without a sense of entitlement, without anger, without expectations. Just implementing the principles of the kingdom of God, that too is your glory. So we thank you, Lord, for your glory on earth that once was here in your physical form, and we thank you for the glory of your kingdom, which is still among us. And we pray that you will help us to identify it because it's often as invisible as a tiny seed or yeast, but it's there. Give us eyes to see and hearts to follow. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.